We're just going to go ahead and get started. And why I chose to have us be able to see one another is um, normally if we're having an encounter event, we can see one another. And even if the event is happening and you're not able to speak during it, you, we can still see you. And I think that's important that we're all, you know, a part of a community and we're not just kind of spectators observing. So, um, but feel free to, if you know, you're moving your computer, you can of course stop sharing your screen. So welcome to the first um, part of a three-part series and how can we better follow Jesus during this election season? Um, and I thought that this was a really necessary question for us as Christians to be asking um, because I know that I've seen and I've seen in myself a level of um, distraughtness or discord or just kind of what is happening and how can we respond um, both in myself and also in our church body. And I think that as Christians, we have incredible resources which we can draw upon and we can also draw upon each other uh, so we can face um, the political climate, this election with, um, yeah, with integrity and with faithfulness um, and with seeking our Lord Jesus Christ through it all. So thank you for being here. Um, and this morning we are joined by Dr. Covington, so excited to have him here, who's a political science professor at Westmont College. And so he's given us his morning and has prepared for this time. And so we're very thankful to have him here. And how it will work is basically uh, me and Dr. Covington will have a conversation for about 40 minutes. Um, and then after there'll be a time of Q&A for about 20 minutes and we'll wrap up around 11 a.m. And ground rules, we ask that you do mute yourself throughout the duration of the conversation. Um, and, then base, and then also we'll ask that you submit your questions throughout the conversation through the chat. And then Megan is gonna go ahead and compile the list of questions. And then the last 20 minutes, we'll be discussing those questions that you have submitted. Um, and before we get started, I just wanted to pray for our time um, and pray for our nation. So please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your Lordship in our lives, for leading and guiding us through the storms and trials we face. We want our whole lives, our hearts, minds, bodies, communal life, and even our political participation to be submitted to you. Where we have held onto hate, please sow forgiveness. Where we have been blind to truth, give us new insight. Where we have made idols out of men and women, remind us of your power displayed on the cross. We need your mercy to pour over us and over our nation. We pray for the president and first lady who have COVID-19 and ask for their healing and recovery. We pray too for all who are bearing the weight, pain, and dire effects of this virus. Would you be their comfort and strength? Allow us to continue to grow in our faith during this time and be unswerving in our faithfulness to you. Amen. So that 
is our hope and prayer this morning. Uh, and thank you for being here. And so now we'll go ahead and get the conversation started. And if you do have any questions, you can submit them through the chat and Megan will be able to answer them for you. Um, so Dr. Covington, Jesse Covington, thanks for being here. I thought to get our conversation started, it would be great to know a little bit more about who you are and why you would find this conversation that we're having important. And yeah, what, yeah, is your background that this might especially be an interesting conversation for you? Sure, happy to, happy to do that. First, I'll just say thanks so much for having me, Nikki, and for all of you for coming on a Saturday morning, um, when I know uh, there are plenty of other things that, uh, that, that could be filling your time. Thanks for, uh, uh, for being here. I'm, I, I am deeply grateful for just the chance to engage uh, people in the, the church on questions of politics. Um, I think it's a wonderful privilege. And uh, I also just have a, a lot of affection and admiration for uh, Free Methodist, Santa Barbara, uh, lots of, uh, of uh, dear friends uh, that are part of, of this congregation. I'm so grateful to get to join you for uh, a few minutes this morning. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, as Nikki said, I'm a political scientist at Westmont College. This is my 14th year at Westmont. And I taught at Wheaton College in the Midwest. It's sort of a, a you know, Westmont of the Midwest. Um, and uh, uh, before I came here, and just, I, I would say, I, I got interested in the intersection of religion and politics at about the age of 12. Um, there, um, I, I won't bore you with the kind of details of my life story, but kind of, it was about 12 that I got interested in how these two fit together. And um, I, I would say my studies have reflected that. I, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I, um, I studied political science. When I got done with that, I went to seminary. When I got done with that, I went and did a PhD in political science. So um, um, I've just been long interested in this. I, I'll just say it, it, that it really has two faces for me in terms of my own research and work. I'm interested on the one hand in the good of the political order. That is, how do, how do we um, um, improve the overall um, political order in ways that are appropriate to politics. And I'd say certain parts of my own research and work go in that direction. And the other is really, for me, is in the good of the church. How do Christians faithfully think about, pray about, engage with politics? And um, so that involves, you know, engaging with political theology and, and, and stuff like that. So I'll, I'll just, I'll give you that background about myself because it's part of what makes this sort of invitation as, um, as valuable to me as it is, as I care deeply about this. Um, but candidly, the relationship between um, the church broadly, not your church in particular, but just the church broadly and, and academics isn't always great. So I love, I love when there's a, hey, let's talk. I, you know, it gets me excited. Um, more personally, you know, I'm um, married to Holly for about 22 years and four kids and, uh, Locally, I'm a member of Christ Presbyterian, um, downtown Santa Barbara. A little bit about me. Awesome. Thanks so much for that introduction. I think it's helpful to know where you're coming from. Sure. Um, and we want to get started, or I want to get started basically 
with what do you think are some of the challenges that we're facing in the political arena right now and challenges that Christians are facing? And at the same token, if we're facing challenges, what are opportunities that are before us as well? Um, so n name them even if they seem obvious. Sure. No, I'm happy to. I'm, I'm partly I'm laughing just because as, as, as I think about, you know, list challenges that we're facing right now. And, I, and I, what I want to say is, how long do we have? Um, um, uh, and I don't mean that in a hopeless sense, but just in, a, in, a, in kind of an honest sense. I, I think most years when I get invited to do kind of election related talks or, 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 or things, a, a lot of what's happening there is just is interest. There's curiosity. How do we think about this issue, that issue, this candidate, that, you know, it, I feel like th this year, curiosity is not the driving factor. Um, you know, if I were to give kind of like top two responses that at least a lot of people that I'm talking to are, are feeling, um, people are weary and worried. Um, and, um, and weariness and worry are just different from sort of like intellectual curiosity. But, uh, but to get at the substance of your question, like what are, the, what are the challenges and opportunities? On the one hand, I just wanna say, I do think a brief inventory on the challenges is, is worthwhile in looking at our moment. You know, COVID, <laughs> right? Um, and COVID isn't just a health crisis, it's a hugely political challenge. I think that we've all become increasingly aware of the reach and impact of political decisions on our everyday lives, um, not just where we're allowed to go or not allowed to go, but what we're wearing, um, um, the availability of various resources, healthcare, you know. Um, so COVID has been huge as far as challenge. Um, the national conversation that we've been having about racial justice, um, the events, the protests, the, um, um, all have had a huge impact as many are looking for deep, deep change. So another big challenge, but I, and the path to change isn't entirely clear, um, nor is there consensus nationally on exactly what the changes should be and how we should get there, right? So, so another, you know, another item on the list, you, you know, this, this election, which I know we're going to be talking about substantially more, but I'll just mention it's, it's, it's rancorous. And I think that's a challenge. It's, it's not just disagreement on substance, but, um, um, but I would say there's, there's more than disagreement on the merits of different uh, um, policy proposals and, and, and platforms. Um, um, you know, we could add on to this wildfires, climate change, <laughs> the economy. Um, all, many people are so, anyway, so I'll, I'll just say like on that inventory of, of challenges that we're facing, which overlap with politics, but aren't limited to it. I, I really just, I see, I think many people feel out of control. And so there's high anxiety. So that worry piece, I think is, is, is really big. I think one of the, one of the other trends that political scientists and sociologists have been tracking for the last, you know, 10, 15 years is that of polarization. Um, so I think there's some very challenging situational things, but I also think that just the dynamics of political interaction have shifted in ways that lead to a changed public discourse that's characterized by um, polarization um, um, uh, in ways that we haven't seen um, um, you know, as recently as, as 20 years ago. Um, 
and, and maybe I'll mention this because, I mean, this is a church gathering, right? Um, churches have been disrupted. Uh, am, I, am I right that Free Methodist is, is not meeting in person? Is that? Uh, well, we haven't been, but now we're okay. meeting under the tent, but we also continue okay. to meet online. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, I'm just aware, like, what does it do the, to the church as community for like going for extended periods of time where we're not meeting in person with each other? Um, you know, my, my church was all online for a season and then it went to, you know, we've got an outdoor meeting that streamed online, you know, so I, I've, I've been living through this too. But that's a real disruption. I think it's a, a, a major challenge for the church in thinking well about how do, we, how do we respond to our political moment. So kind of on the challenge side of your question, um, boy, I think, I think the needs and challenges are, are stark and the means of addressing them are really inhibited. Um, and I'll just say this about, I think what part of how that feeds, I'll, I'll, I'll say more about this later, but, but part of how that feeds into politics is that I think there are these temptations to either totalize politics or minimize politics. To say, we have to put all our chips in the political basket on the one hand and, and put all of our energy and concern and attention and effort and emotion into politics. Or, you know, forget it, I'm, I'm, I'm walking. <laughs> um, and, and, and so I think just this, in a season of tremendous challenge, um, Th those temptations and how they play out, which might be in the same person just on different days, right, um, are either to totalize or to, to minimize. Um, and, and by minimize, it doesn't mean you're minimizing the challenges. I think it, I, I think it can be just like, I'm too, I'm too discouraged. It's too challenging. I can't fix it. Um, um, but you also asked about the opportunity part, and I'll, 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 I'll be brief here because I think some of the opportunity stuff will come up um, as we continue our conversation. Um, I was talking to some students yesterday about being in crisis mode. Um, <laughs> I feel like we've, you know, nationally, 2020 has become synonymous with being in crisis mode, right? Um, and, and as I've reflected on, on this, and I'm, you know, most of what I have to say, by the way, is completely unoriginal. I don't have very many original thoughts. I'm borrowing from, you know, good resources, but, um, you know, my, my sense is that crises, crises do, do multiple things. And I think these are opportunities. Um, so anytime we give like a long laundry list of challenges, I really see that as, okay, this triggers our crisis, crisis opportunity list. I think crises reveal our hearts. They show us our, our idols um, often. And they show us where our hope is too, right? But they reveal our hearts at a deep level. I feel like I have to give my mom credit for this. When I was 18 years old, I can't remember even what we were talking about. My mom took me outside, handed me a glass of water, said, hold it firmly. And she slapped the glass of water uh, pretty hard so that it spilled a portion of the water on the ground. She said, Jesse, why is there water on the ground? I said, because you hit me. She said, no. I said, yeah, yeah, it's because you hit me. She said, no. She said, well, you know, why isn't there coffee or Coke or something on the, on the, on, on, on the ground? And, and, and I said, well, because there was water in the cup. And she said, that's why the water spilled is because what it, was, it was what was in there to begin with. And her point was kind of like when life is 
challenging and disrupts us, jostles us, um, what comes out of us is what was already in us, in a sense. And so I think, I think crises reveal what's inside. So our responses to the moment show us things about our heart, which is great. You know, that, you know Scripture wants us to be, you know, to know our hearts and, and for God to search our hearts. So I think that's one opportunity. And, and another is that crises refine us right? Suffering refines us, um, and it can help us um, uh, be formed and purge what should not endure. And so I think the formation piece, that refining piece, is a really important part of this. And the last one is also just crises, crises draw us into a relationship. Um, we, we, we bond, um, you know, you talk about how soldiers uh, can bond during combat. Um, um, they strengthen the bonds among those who share challenges. So I do see opportunity in all of those areas in relation to that laundry list of, of challenges. Now, I'll have more to say about, I think, the political face of some of that opportunity as we go, go along, but that, uh, uh, maybe I'll, I'll stop on this question for now. Yeah, that, that's really helpful to um, just kind of lay a very substantive list of all the challenges that we're facing. And um, it's not easy, and I think, we all are aware that um, the challenges keep compounding and yeah. yeah. And, and so what are we basically then to do? And then at the same time, there is opportunity for Christians to step in. And so I don't though want to waste kind of your expertise as a political scientist, but also as a faithful Christian. Um, and I know that you, you think you spend your time thinking through um theoretical insights into how we can approach politics, into how we can approach this moment. And at the same time, you're a practicing Christian, and so your theology matters to you. And yeah. so um, are there any kind of political insights or ideas that are helping you navigate these challenges? Or is there any theology that you're drawing upon that is like grounding you or rooting you? Um, can you share that with us? Uh, uh, ab absolutely. I'd be delighted to. I'm, I'll get, I'll get to the kind of like the, you know, uh, political and social theory in just a second, but I, I, I'd say kind of at, at the, at the, at the heart of how I can approach a season like this with hope and, 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 and dare I say joy is just the reality that it is Jesus Christ who saves ultimately not me or or my political regime or anything. And so at the, at the end of the day, like it's, it's, it's an eschatological vision of, of, um, of the final good um, at the end of time that makes it possible to engage without despair. Um, I think in in the world. So I would say my eschatology is probably really central. Um, but but in, in one sense, you can misperceive that because you can say, well, that's putting everything everything on the future, right? Which I I, I actually probably shocker alert, I don't do. Um, um, but um, yeah, actually. So let me let me actually let, let let me start actually with some kind of theory some maybe sociological and political theory, that's primarily what I do is political theory, and then, and then um, maybe make, draw some lines of connection um, um, theologically. Um, like I told you, basically none of my ideas are original, so I'm just gonna kind of point to some people like, I think, oh, I think this is a helpful idea. Um, a sociologist, a Christian sociologist at the University of Virginia named James Davison Hunter um, wrote a book called To Change the World uh, a few years back. And, um, I won't try to give you the kind of the scope of the whole book, but 
one of his observations about, just as a sociologist, about like what's been happening in America for, uh, you know, kind of for the last, you know, 100 years, but probably like more substantially more, more, more recently. And one, one of the things that he's observed, and I could kind of confirm this from other sources, but is increasingly sociologically, we've been accepting that almost everything at the end of the day is resolved by politics. In other words, it, it, he calls it politicization. Increasingly, we've, we've seen the answer to more and more problems be a political answer in a way that, in a way that he's a, he describes as um, conflating the public with the political. In other words, that doesn't differentiate what's public from what's political. And, and, and he would say this has been the dominant trend in the United States growing progressively for about a, a, a century. Now we could have a really interesting conversation about like what's the evidence for that and how do we see that, but maybe I'll just say, I think it's a helpful insight, but the implications are what I think are interesting for this conversation, which is I think the, the, the implications are, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll focus on two right here. One is we have an increasing turn toward ideology and concomitantly with that, an increasing turn toward power. We're, in other words, we're, we're focusing more on ideology and more on power. And I'll, 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 un, I'll unpack that a little bit. Um, and it's actually, these are, these are Hunter's insights, but I'm gonna draw some other people into the conversation. So Hunter says, look, we, we start to put our hope more and more in ideology, because if, if politics is where we get our identity, where we put our hope for change in the world, um, then our ideology becomes our, our centering place, that is where we, where we find our orientation. And um, there's a Canadian um, political scientist named David Coises, who, um, uh, you know, I, I, won't, I won't go into detail, but he has a wonderful book on how Christians should think about ideology. So if you're, uh, you, you know, if you want to dig further on this, um, look up David Coises' uh, um, book, Political Visions and Illusions. InterVarsity just published a second edition of it. Uh, you know, anyway, wonderful, wonderful text. But the, the heart of his argument about what ideology does, I think is very, very helpful. What he says that all ideologies do is they take one good from the created order and totalize it. In other words, they do what all idolatry does, which is take something good, like a legitimate good, and, and simply invest it with something that can only be invested in the creator God. And so, you know, he's absolutely ruthless in dissecting every political ideology in terms of kind of the major categories, you know, conservatism, liberalism, um, um, socialism, you name it, he's going to take it down at the knees. Because he's, what he's going to show is he's, he's going to say, this is taking a legitimate good, like freedom or a legitimate good like equality or a legitimate good like the community and totalizing that good to the neglect both of God and of competing goods. And, um, and so I think, I think to the extent that Hunter is right, and I, I think he is on this, that, that we, we're in a season of um, about 100 years of, of politicization that turn toward ideology is not religiously neutral, 
but is actually uh, at, at, at real risk of idolatry, of putting our, our ultimate hopes on created things. And it's tricky because those created things are good um, and we can't neglect them. Um, the other piece of this, and I realize this is a long answer to your question, but I, I, I'm obviously, I get excited about these things and so I want to talk, you know, I want to go on like, I'll, I'll say the other piece of this besides the turn toward ideology that's, that's helpful is Hunter points out the, the ways in which Christians specifically, and I'll say the middle section of his book to change the world is just brutal on Christians. It's it, like you read it and you recognize yourself and you're just like, oh yes, I've done that. Um, um, is, is that there is a fundamental turn toward, if you trust politics to affect um, kind of your vision of the good life um, in, in, in sort of total ways, um, then we turn toward power rather than persuasion. If the final arbiter of social life, in his words, um, is the coercive power of the state, um, then, in a sense, the only answer is domination. <laughs> the, I mean, really, I mean, at the end of the day, like, how do we get our way? By gaining power. And, um, and this is actually kind of one of those wonderful touch points also to theology, because um, you know, I, I feel like I can't talk about politics and, and Christianity without talking about St. Augustine. I love St. Augustine. In the City of God, he, his, his, the, 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 primary, the primary problem with Rome's um, uh, kind of political way of being in the world is what Augustine calls the libido dominandi, the lust for domination, which is... Um, Usurping, usurping God's authority at the, at the end of the day. And, um, and the way this manifests itself um, um, in the ways that Hunter talks about is, is we tell ourselves these sort of narratives of resentment of what sort of our political opponents have done, these like long stories of how they've subverted all the goods of, 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 of America and, um, and how if we just had power, our kind of our version of, of Christianity had power, um, it, would, it would lead to better things. And, and what he, Hunter points out is this leads to a fundamental orientation of fear and anger, that fear and anger become our primary motivations that are driving a power-based approach to politics. Uh, and there are other great resources I could, I could point us to. I love, I love the work that um, Mockingbird Ministries and David Zoll and, and folks like this who are doing to kind of reveal some of the ways that these kind of play, play out. Um, but I, I, I really do, I think, kind of identifying the potential idolatrous nature of making political ideology our identity, and then the fruit of that in seeing power as the answer um, is really helpful in this season as far as... Um, diagnosis in other words of like seeing like what's what kind of what might we be doing and then what do we need to do about it, at least starting is starting us on um on that but i've been going for a little while so let me let me i'll i'll i'll, I'll stop and uh uh and and come back to you nikki yeah so i i think those are really helpful points to consider the fact that we've become or consumed if we're not careful with amassing power and relying on power um, to carry us and and totalizing our political ideology and the dangers in doing that. 
Um, so I want to take us maybe in a bit of a different direction, although I think its roots are in kind of the totalizing of our political ideology, is the prevalence of polarization. Um, and I'm just going to read just the something from Love Your Enemies by Arthur Brooks. But he says, divisive politicians, hateful pundits, angry campus activists, Twitter trolls. Today in America, there's an outraged industrial complex that prospers by setting American against American, creating a culture of contempt, the habit of seeing people who disagree with us, not as merely incorrect, but as worthless and defective. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's a searing kind of look at our current situation and polarization exists and it exists in churches, it exists in our workplaces and, um, and how do you see maybe some helpful ways to think about that or to, and to like live in that and navigate through that um, mm. would be helpful. Yeah, I love the language of the quote that you just read from Brooks of an outrage industrial complex. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's so true. Um, I'll just note, I, I, I was having a conversation with some students um, a little over a year ago, and I'd asked them a question. We were talking about something really, really challenging that, uh, in, in, a, in a class on Christianity and politics, right? And, and so we had some really delicate stuff on the table. And I, I asked, do you talk to your friend about this stuff? Because it's really important too. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. We would never talk to our friends about this stuff. I said, why not? And they said, well, then we might lose our friendship. <laughs> and, and, and a little bit of sifting at that, it, it helped me to realize, some, uh, it gave me, I, I would say, language to better get at some of what you're describing, Nikki, um, which was the extent to which disagreement about ideas was actually those that ideas weren't being um, separated from identity. I think this is the fruit of ideology, actually. The fruit of ideology is that your ideas are your identity. And so disagreement becomes a personal attack. Now, <laughs> the, 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 those of you who have studied logic, which I haven't, but most of us are, are, are familiar with the with with the um, with the ad hominem fallacy, where you uh, where, you know where you stop arguing with someone's ideas and you just start attacking the person instead. And something I've always told my kids is um, the first person to commit the ad hominem attack knows that they've lost on the merits of the argument, um, and uh, and and so don't be that person, right? <laughs> Um, but we are, Nikki, as you say, we're in a season where um, all disagreement is seen as, sometimes is, but is seen as an ad hominem attack. And I think that feeds this polarization um, um, thing. And so I think, you know, in, in, in answer to your question, kind of like, how might, how might Christians respond to polarization? I mean, I think step, step one is, is, um, is, articulating regularly with people that we're in dialogue with um, the ways in which we're separating ideas from people. In other words, that we can love the, love, you know, I, I, I love you, I disagree with your ideas. Let's talk about that. Um, um, I, I, I was pointed by a colleague recently to a, um, one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, sermons um, 
uh, called A Tough Mind and a Tender Heart. And, and in it, um, you know, this is from 19, 1958, so very kind of early, early civil rights movement. Um, and in it, he's, he's casting a vision for, for the problems of either only having a tough mind or only having a tender heart and, the, and, and, and kind of like, what's the fruit of each of those? And it's very bad in both cases, it's very bad. And, and what, do you, what do you cast a vision for as an alternative, as a distinctively Christian alternative, actually, is a, a third way of, on the one hand, opposing injustice in ways that take the truth and virtues like courage and justice really seriously that are that are that 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 don't shy away from the substance of politics and political change and on the other hand are deeply tender hearted towards those who disagree and even are our quote unquote political enemies. I actually pulled a quote from this sermon where he says this. He says, through nonviolent resistance, we shall be able to oppose the unjust system and at the same time love the perpetrators of the system. Note, note that language. It's not even, it's not just like, um, uh, 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 Love those who disagree with us. It's love those who are sinning against us. And I'll, I'll finish the quote. He says, we must work passionately and unrelentingly for full stature as citizens, but may it never be said, my friends, that to gain it, we use the inferior methods of falsehood, malice, hate, and violence. And so I, 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 I think the, the vision of resisting the temptation to demonize political opponents. And, and, and I'll just say, I include in demonizing political opponents, the partial truths that we tell in, um, in I'd say kind of po the politics of memes, right? Um, these, these snapshots, it's not just the ones that are patently false that are communicating things that, you know, any fact checker would tell you aren't true, but the ones who take really selective parts of a narrative and, and put it up as if it is um, uh, uh, sort of rhetorically decisive as far as evidence goes. That's false witness against our neighbors. Um, on either side of the, of, the, of the political aisle. I think the resisting bearing false witness against our neighbors by partial truths or by ad hominem attacks um, um, is, is, is vital for dealing with polarization. Um, so being relentlessly committed to the truth um, is, is huge. But I would, also, I would also say something that's even more, I'd say kind of like, that, that's the horizontal piece, but the vertical piece is more fundamental. Um, you know, here I'm thinking of, you know, Pro Proverbs 16, 9, um, 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 you know, um, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. If the goal is control, then we're saying we establish our steps. If the goal is faithfulness, then it's about our inputs, not about outcomes. And so I really do think that a central piece of Christian response to polarization is letting go in, in, in a certain sense, a certain detachment about outcomes. 
and, and, and in a sense, acknowledging that God is ultimately in control of the outcomes and praying that regularly. Um, Henri Nouwen, um, uh, um, wonderful uh, uh, Catholic uh, uh, thinker and author, um, particularly on issues of discipleship, just over, you know, just very, very powerfully communicates the ways in which power um, is a substitute for, for love. Um, in, in other words, it's easier than, than, than love. And as a parent, I really get this because, you know, like when I want my kids to do something, you know, just do it. Okay. You know, you know, brush your teeth, buckle your seatbelt, whatever it is. Um, 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 control is easier than love. And I see it in my own heart, in my, like in my own personal life. But I think it's also true in politics. So kind of recognizing God's ultimate control and surrendering that all the time and favoring instead faithfulness. What are the inputs that God's calling me to is, is, is absolutely central. Last thing I'll say, and I'll be very brief on this, is just we can identify and pursue political goods that are truly common, basically where there, where there aren't winners and losers. Um, and, um, and I think uh, one resource that's helpful for this is Amy Black. Um, uh, she's a former colleague of mine at Wheaton College. Uh, 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 has written a couple of books about this. Beyond Left and Right is a, is a good one. Um, but are just sort of equipping for politics of the common good um, and, um, and strategically, it doesn't mean you agree with everybody, it just means we strategically seek common cause, even with those that we disagree with in the areas that we can't agree on. Um, so, um, little, you know, obviously there's a lot more we can talk about with polarization. There's, there's, there's a lot of it. Yes, there, there is a lot of it, but um, thank you, Jesse. I think it's super helpful for us to recognize that um, even if we disagree with someone's ideas, we don't, that doesn't mean we disagree with them or if someone disagrees with our ideas, they are not disagreeing with our personhood and that our ideas are separate than our identity because uh, our identity is in Christ and um, that is where we, we find true, our true foundation. And so that's really helpful to kind of think deeper into why polarization is plaguing our nation. Um, and so we are here as, so we're here to talk about politics and Christianity. We're also here to talk about the election. Um, and that is quickly approaching. And so I'm curious, A, are you voting? and not, not who you're voting for, but A, are you voting? And B, um, what do you think about voting? Like, how do you approach your vote? How do you approach voting in general? And how does your faith uh, play into that? So yeah, would love to hear that. Uh, happy, happy to. Uh, yeah, so, okay, I'll start with the easy part. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I do, I, I do uh, plan to vote, and I even have my ballot, so um, um, that's, uh, that's in train. Um, I think here's how I think about voting at a very kind of general and theological level. I, have to, I want to start with citizenship. So... I actually think that if you're a citizen, you have political authority. You know, Aristotle defines a citizen as one who rules and is ruled in turn. 
Um, and so, you know, you don't, you know, most of, you know, you're under political authority, but you also have some political authority. That's what a citizen is. And, um, and so I, I really see citizenship as, you know, I'll use the language of the reformers here as an office. Um, you know, Luther talked a lot about office. Um, I see citizenship as an office of political authority. And so your question about voting, I put it kind of, I, I put into the, the context of, of citizenship where it's, you, we all have, if we're citizens, we have the political authority. The question is not if we're using it, but how we're using it. And so in a sense, the, the decision not to vote is a decision to do something with my political authority. And um, the decision of how to vote is a decision of how to wield political authority. Now, the wonderful news is scripture is chock full of directions for rulers on how to use their political authority. And so it isn't, it, it, you know, it doesn't matter that it's not talking about, uh, uh, you know, what we would think of as a, you know, a citizen in a liberal democracy. Um, it's still using political authority. So, you know, scripture's got all kinds of things to say about this. And, and I, I, think, I think a shorthand way that I think about these things is that, is that political authority is established by God for um, blessing the community and restraining evil for doing good and doing justice. Um, and you know, if you want a quick, quick reference for that, you know, Romans 13 would be one starting point, but there's lots of other places. I mean, um, but, but in a sense, it's not about me and my own interests and what I want, but it's about doing justice and the common good. And, and so like, you know, am I gonna vote or not? Well, Yes, in the words of Hamilton, I'm not throwing away my shot. But I think as a, a right, a, 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 you say, uh, but I can, I can hear the counter response, right? The counter response, and, and like political scientists will make this, is look, we understand the mathematics of voting, particularly in a presidential election, um, the, um, the probability, the statistical probability that I or one of you is going to cast a deciding vote in a national election is statistically indistinguishable from zero. <laughs> um, um, it's a very low probability. And so you might say, well, then, then why do it? I say, ah, this is, but this is a great opportunity. This is where we can practice where outcomes, control of the outcome isn't actually our focus. Our focus is on faithfulness of input. And if I have political authority and I'm called to discharge it for the sake of justice and the common good without regard to controlling the outcome, what a wonderful liturgy, if you will, to practice doing that that isn't, isn't rigidly tied to, um, um, to the outcome. God controls the outcome. So I think, I think civic faithfulness means for, for me not letting frustration, distaste, a sense of powerlessness, or a sense of power um, or confusion be the controlling factor. Um, instead, how do I be faithful? All right, I've got this political power. I'm going to discharge it faithfully, and I'm going to pray about the results. Um, um,
So that's, uh, you know, that's a little bit about how I think uh, uh, about actually casting a vote because that's what we're all uh, leading up to. Uh, although I, I imagine some people have already already cast it. Great, that's, that's helpful. I'm wondering, so we talked a little bit about Michael Ware and he, um, yeah, is a consultant. He wrote Compassion and Conviction or co-wrote that. Um, and I think that the way he views the vote is very interesting. He says that oftentimes we um, think about our vote as an expression of who we are, like very much self-expression and we put a lot of weight into it and we kind of have experienced maybe some inner turmoil or a lot of agony when like deciding how to cast our vote. And I'm wondering, are you familiar at all with his approach to thinking about voting so or, and I, the moral burdens that we put on it? Sure. Um, so I haven't read that book. I know Michael, yeah. I, I, I know Michael personally a little bit, but, um, but um, I, 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 I would say with respect to kind of like how much we invest in it um, um, to that point, I, I do think that the degree to which we invest deeply of ourselves can have a healthy face and an unhealthy face. I think the healthy face is the extent to which we see it as a moral responsibility that we do discharge before God and for the good of, of others. In that sense, it's really important. Um, to the extent that we see it, um, in a sense, salvifically, <laughs> that is, that is, that this is where our hope is and where our identity is. I think it reflects a bit more of that um, um, ideological function of the way that we think about the political. Um, um, so, um, I think, yes, it can <laughs> rise, rise to that kind of level of like of deep emotional engagement, um, with potentially a healthy face and an unhealthy face. And maybe one thing that I didn't say before that I, that I might mention is, um, even though I, I realize that the way that I cast voting is, you know, if, if it's statistically a very low probability that we're ever going to cast a deciding vote in a national election, um, that can be discouraging. One thing is I think it, it does become more important, though, is on um, on smaller level elections where a lot of public good questions are decided, which is like local politics. Um, then, then it actually becomes much more significant um, um, statistically who who shows up and turns out, um, um, etc. Now, not that the outcome is the, is the primary uh, motivator, but I do want to make keep faithfulness there. But I also don't want to be. I don't want to de de detract from the extent to which it does matter for lower lower levels of government. That's yeah, that's helpful to think to think through. It's both a moral responsibility, and yet it's not um, our most important political act either, necessarily. Um, so we did receive a couple of questions. Um, so the first question that I'll be passing along is. Do you know any tools for moderating, facilitating difficult conversations about politics in small group settings? Uh, you mentioned having such conversations with students occasionally. What are approaches, questions, and even word choices that could perhaps create space for good dialogue among people who disagree? That's an amazing question. Thanks to who submitted it. 
Yeah, that is, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's actually related to a question that I've asked too, because I want to get better at this. Um, let's see, it, that question, I was trying to get the text of it, but it isn't think, showing up. In oh yeah, there. I, oh, there I it is. just sent it to you. Yeah. Uh, perfect, thank you. Um, tools for moderating and facilitating difficult conversations about politics in small group settings. Um, yeah, um, I, I would I would say um, this is actually something I'll, I'll just be I'll just be candid. Um, this is something that I really want to get better at myself because what 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 I have used for most of my professional career thus far for this has really been. Um, the repeated contact of the classroom context for building, like, like if you're seeing people multiple times a week, you're sitting down, you're talking, you're interacting around the margins of the classroom. What it does is it builds relationship and it builds trust. And as you build relationship and trust, then it's possible to get into the really hard stuff without it, um, without it being at an identity level and an ad hominem level, right? Um, and, and, and so what I've leaned on myself for a long time is, is building relationship and trust. What I've actually been observing though is, is that's not sufficient anymore. And it's not sufficient in, in, in kind of, for, I think for two reasons. One is the level of polarization and, and conflation of identity with ideas is making it so that all conversations are ad hominem, to at least interpreted as ad hominem, and sort of relationship and trust doesn't seem to be enough um, anymore. The, the other one is just how much we're doing that's mediated by digital um, um, communication, like Zoom, like the extent to which we're doing class and interaction over Zoom, it cuts out all that marginal relationship stuff. There's no kind of like workplace water cooler type uh, type interaction, at least a lot less of it, uh, I, I think, which is making it harder to build to build the trust. So I, I'll, I'll just say, the way that I've done this for a long time doesn't seem to be enough. And, um, and, um, and so I'm turning to resources that others have recommended um, um, to me. Um, so I think um, I'll just point to the work at Westmont of, um, of uh, uh, Deborah Dunn, and Rachel Winslow, they're running um, an institute through the Westmont Downtown program that's um, uh, basically kind of how do we, it, it's, it's the program in um, democratic deliberation, something else, I have to look it up, but, but it's really providing structured tools for the hardest conversations. Um, the other, um, another was a book, uh, I'd have to look this up, but I, our, our campus pastor, Scott Lassay, recommended a book to me and I, I, I think I've got it. Uh, um, uh, uh, might be in my Amazon wish list, but I haven't actually ordered it yet. But I'll just say, it's something I'm looking to get better at too, um, but because the tools I've been using are becoming um, insufficient for the day. It's not a great answer, but there it is. Um, th yeah, thank you for your honesty and transparency and that was helpful. So we have another converse, another question. Uh, it says, what should my response be to rule or a ruler and authority if I live under a dictatorship? 
I'm sorry, I, my, my ear, earpiece wasn't working. Can we go to the next question? No. Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's a, good, it, it, it's a good and a fair question. Um, I, would, I would say two, twofold. Um, Maybe I, I'll go to two different scriptures, and, I, and I'm just I'm aware. Even citing these scriptures is going to raise more questions than answers. <laughs> um, but I do think that that if we're asking about what as Christians our responsibilities are to unjust political authorities, um, we can go to some scriptures that are answering that that question. The first would be um, the gospel account of um, Caesar's coin. Um, uh, when, when some come, come to Jesus and say, um, um, look, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because they want to trap him. And he, and he says, show me a denarius. And, the, and, 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 and he says, all right, whose image and, and whose inscription? They say Caesar's. He says, okay, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Um, um, but render to God what is God's. And this passage has been used and abused in a couple of different ways, because I think you can, you can it, on, on the one hand, it's saying political authority, even the religio, the, 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 the idolatrous religio-political authority of the Roman Empire, um, has a certain limited claim to authority. Um, it has a certain claim to, you know, hey, pay, 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 pay your taxes even to the emperor. Um, but render to God what is God's, um, what, what, I, what I appreciate about, about that is, it's, is it's, um, it's relativizing the claims of the political authority and putting them in the context of like, whose image is on us, right? We bear, like, like the coin bears Caesar's image, we bear the divine image. And so the totality of ourselves is ultimately to be rendered to God. And so that relativizes the claim of Caesar and, says, and, and, um, and, um, and, and therefore um, limits it um, substantially. So, so what I would say is there is some legitimate claim of unjust political authority. Um, you know, and I would, okay, so I, I think Romans 13, um, which is, you know, the first seven verses or so is Paul kind of um, um, saying, look, um, um, authorities are established by God. Um, when Nero is, um, is the emperor, the, like the transition between Claudius and Nero, right? Um, um, so it's saying there is some legitimate claim. At the same time, think about the Old Testament um, prophetic witness against unjust uses of power. And so I think that we, I, I think that we can hold, I guess the, the short version is, is I think we have to hold, hold these in tension. On the one hand, the legitimacy of political authority um, that we, um, 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 that we live under because no political order is 100% just. They're all partially unjust and it's just all in a continuum of, of how unjust. 
On the other hand, um, it is a limited, um, constrained uh, power to which um, uh, we are called to respond faithfully, even when that requires resistance. So I'm back at King's language, I, I, I think here, of the tough, tough mind, tender heart, third way. So don't know if that's helpful. No, thanks for drawing upon the witness of scripture. That is very helpful. Uh, so one, another question. I think this is our last question. So yeah, this will be our last question. Um, and yeah, so as Christians, how should we distinguish between situations where we should submit to unjust uses of power versus situations where inaction itself is unjust. I don't know. If mm. Yeah. Um, submitting to unjust uses of power versus where inaction itself is un unjust. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. I, I, I would just say, and I'm, I'm kind of drawing some on some. Um, thinkers, uh, you know, these are, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of some Protestant reformers in, in, in response here. Um, you know, particularly, I think, Calvin, Luther, um, I think especially Calvin with this one. In a sense, Calvin's, Calvin's take on how to respond to um, tyrannical or unjust authority, um, actually, no, this is, fair, to be fair, this is Luther too, this is not just mine, um, is, is, you submit when you are only being asked to suffer injustice. So basically the claim, the claim on submission is legitimate um, even when it's a call to suffering something, even if it's unjust. Um, but that claim does not extend to committing injustice. So are you called to suffer? Yes, and submit to suffering. But are you called to do injustice? Um, definitely not. That's where kind of like, you know, acts, we must obey God rather than men becomes the con controlling, um, controlling factor. Um, if that's uh, the case, then the discernment question on inaction, um, and actually this is where I think kind of like the Dutch reform tradition, particularly Abraham Kuyper, is really helpful. Um, um, then the question becomes a, what, a question of calling, of like where, where am I being called to act in various spheres of my life? And if, I'm, um, if I am called by God to act in these ways, then, um, then, um, then inaction would be um, a failure with regard to um, my obligations to God. So I have to obey God rather than, than human. So, so for example, um, you know, if, if um, uh, this is a lame example, so maybe I shouldn't give it, but I'm just thinking, I'm thinking kind of Kuiper's type of thinking here is like, if, if my political obligations um, are saying I shouldn't parent in a way that I think is essential, like say teaching my kid about the, you know, the doctrine of original sin is a psychological harm, therefore don't, don't, don't teach original sin anymore. I'm still going to need to teach my kid that because my responsibilities as a parent would mean that inaction would be a failure to do, um, um, do what God calls me to do. Um, um, 
so I, uh, that would be an example. But so, so I would say suffering injustice is one thing. Doing injustice, whether, um, um, whether by a positive act or an inaction where we do have responsibility, um, is another area. I think that the tough thing with that issue, though, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stop with this, is I, I think what's, what's, what's hard there is inaction, um, figuring out what actions we're responsible for in terms of political outcomes um, can, 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 can easily draw in lots of things which we want to see happen, but we might not be actually responsible for the outcomes on. And that, and that becomes a very difficult um, um, question of discernment, um, I think. It's great questions. Yes, thank you everyone who submitted questions. So that is actually the conclusion um, of our time for now, but we will end in prayer and Jesse will pray for us. But yeah, and I just wanted to say, so this first conversation, um, the whole series is really kind of how can we interrogate our faith and how can we become better followers of Jesus during this election? And so part of that is reflecting on the current um, political like arena that we're in and thinking deeply about it in a Christian way. And so we've done that, kind of tackled it a little bit from a political science perspective. And then in two weeks, we're going to be doing it from a theologian's perspective. Um, and so I encourage you to come out. It's my favorite professor from seminary, Dr. Brian Lugioyo, and we're going to be talking a lot about questions of kind of the kingdom of God and where our allegiance lies. Um, and so that should be interesting. So I encourage you to come out in two weeks. Um, but Dr. Covington, thank you so much for sharing your time with us um, and your thoughts and your wisdom. And we just really appreciate it. And would you do us the honor of praying for us to close our time? Uh, I would, I'd be very happy to pray. And I'll just say thanks, thanks for great questions, Nikki, from you, and also just wonderful questions. And I, and I just want to lament i mean I, I what what i what i really do wish is that we could all be sitting around in a room together and 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 you know spend another hour where i get to hear what you're thinking about and processing and we get to talk about it together um, um so we we can we can lament that that's not possible but um thanks for making the invitation to be here and all of you for for being here but um yeah please 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 join me in prayer Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we recognize that you hold the universe in your hand. You spoke it into existence. You breathed life into all creatures. And you created humans, us, in your image. Lord, we recognize your lordship both now and ultimately in um, in all facets of life and lord i pray for each one here including myself that our political engagement in this time leading up to the election would be full of grace and truth of justice and faithfulness, not, motiva not motivated by fear, 
or anger or a desire to control, but rather by a desire for the common good and for justice to be done. Help us to disagree without rancor, to vote with hope, but not ultimate hope. And Lord, would you lead to an outcome in the election in which all people in this nation are, are blessed with the conditions that can lead to their flourishing. Lord, let your church be a faithful witness in this season to your glory and to our good. We ask this not because we deserve it, but because in Christ we can boldly come to you because of what he has done. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, thanks again so much for having me. That's, these are really exciting, fun things to talk about. So thank you very much. And I'm delighted to get to be with all of you. Bye, everyone. Thank you.